Welcome back. My name is Ilya Shapiro. I'm a senior fellow in constitutional studies here at the Cato Institute and editor-in-chief of the Cato Supreme Court Review. Uh, and I have a particular interest in uh, the immigration policy arena, uh, law and policy. Uh, I was delighted when Dan asked me to participate in this conference because I myself am an immigrant, indeed a, a double immigrant at that. I was born in Russia and my family came to Canada when I was little. I like to say that we took a wrong turn at the St. Lawrence Seaway. Um, and so I had to come again from Canada to the United States. And I tell you what, it was harder getting a green card uh, than it was leaving the Soviet Union. So that should give you an indication. <laughs> Um, like Sally, you know, Cato seems to employ a lot of, uh, a lot of us foreigners because we do the jobs that Americans won't. In my case, in my case, that means defending the Constitution. <laughs> and part of that is the, uh, the SB 1070 case, the, the Arizona immigration case that was before the Supreme Court yesterday. You all have in your packets what my thoughts on that. I think it's constitutional. A lot of what the states are doing I think is constitutional, but terrible policy for various reasons that I get into there. Um, we can talk about uh, the case if you're interested in q and I won't go into the, the legal analysis uh, any further, but it's, it seems apparent from uh, yesterday's argument that at least uh, a few of the provisions that are in dispute uh, will go, uh, the, the, the court will rule uh, in Arizona's favor on that. Um, now, it should mean something coming from a Cato scholar when, given my experience, personal and otherwise, that I believe... Uh, that our immigration uh, system is possibly the most screwed up part of the government. Uh, in the past few years, Dodd-Frank and endless uh, bailouts and Obamacare and all the rest of it have given it a run for its money, but immigration remains up there uh, because our laws in this area are schizophrenic and incoherent. Far from merely advancing bad policy, our current immigration system lacks a coherent policy that it purports to implement in the first place. If you tried to put together a set of regulations regarding who can come in, how long they can stay, and what they can do when they get here, it would be hard to come up with something less efficient and effective uh, than our current hodgepodge of uh, often contradictory regulations. This immigration non-policy has led to a state of affairs that doesn't serve anybody's interest, not big business or small business, not the rich or the poor, not the most or least educated, not the economy or national security, and certainly not the average taxpayer. I suppose immigration lawyers and bureaucrats might benefit. That's about it. Uh, what's really sad is that everyone knows what the problems are. Uh, and we also know what a realistic solution would look like uh, if and when something like it can be cobbled together. But Congress, for various political reasons um, that, unlike in most policy areas, cut across partisan lines, uh, has been unable to fix anything, regardless of the party in power or whether the president has been using his own political capital to push immigration reform, nothing has been done. And not surprisingly, this de facto benign neglect uh, has not been a winning strategy. Here to talk to us about the current state of our immigration non-system are Stuart Anderson, Madeline Zavodny, and Jim Harper. Stewart is executive director of the National Foundation for American Policy, a nonpartisan public policy research organization focusing on trade and immigration issues. Uh, in the past, one of the things that he's done was to serve as executive associate commissioner for policy and planning and counselor to the INS commissioner. Earlier, uh, he was director of trade and immigration studies here at Cato. So welcome home. Uh, Madeline is a professor of economics and chair of the economics department at Agnes Scott College near Atlanta. Uh, she had previously been a research economist at the Fed in Atlanta and Dallas. 
uh, and uh, her article focused on the economic consequences of amnesty for unauthorized immigrants. She'll be focusing her talk on why the current system has resulted in large numbers of uh, unauthorized immigrants. And last, but uh, perhaps least, uh, that remains to be seen, uh, as, as Director of Information Policy Studies here at Cato, Jim Harper works to adapt law and policy to the unique problems of the information age in areas such as privacy, telecommunications, intellectual property, and security. We've all tried to understand what exactly that means, uh, but Jim sifts information so felicitously that it's proven futile. Uh, <laughs> Jim, Jim's article covered uh, the so-called internal enforcement of our immigration laws, and he'll be discussing the effectiveness and consequences for liberty of E-Verify. So we'll go in that order without me getting up to uh, interrupt anybody. Um, Stuart. Um, thank you to, to the Cato Institute for holding this event. And... Um, now, if the U.S. Congress was to formulate a, a good immigration policy, uh, I think we would have a system where employers would be able to hire highly skilled people in a relatively short period of time. Uh, families would be able to sponsor other family members in a reasonable time period. We would have a system where uh, entrepreneurs who are have to be born outside the United States, could invest in the United States and, and create jobs, and, and they would get approved to, to stay here in the United States. Um, and we would have a system where employers would be able to hire uh, lesser skilled uh, individuals legally rather than such individuals crossing the border illegally in, in often dangerous, uh, in dangerous ways that result in deaths at the border uh, and other consequences as well. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have a system like that, and I'm going to quickly go through some of these some of these areas to show where the the current system is lacking and, and is incoherent, uh, and how and how some of these areas might be improved. And and the good news on immigration is the the improvements in policies uh, to make things work are, are relatively straightforward uh, as compared to, for example, uh, solving our entitlement problem. Now, on, on the low-skill area, I think if there's one thing you remember out of this conference, I hope it's this, and, is that there is, generally speaking, no line uh, to get into if you want to work at lower-skill jobs in the United States. There are a couple of visa categories for seasonal work. Uh, one is called uh, H-2A for agricultural workers, and the other is H-2B for uh, non-agricultural seasonal workers, they, they work at jobs like, ho in, like in the hotels, resorts, and things like that. Um, the uh, H-2B is, is capped at 66000 a year, and it has just come out with a whole series of regulations to make it even more difficult uh, to use. And the H-2A for agriculture is, is sparsely used in comparison to the, uh, to the overall illegal population that comes into work or a state here to work. Uh, in agriculture, so that system, that that those that visa category does not work either. There really is no visa category for individuals to work at the types of jobs that most illegal immigrants end up filling, which is kind of year-round jobs in hotels, uh, construction, landscaping, uh, those types of jobs. And as a result, um, a black market in labor uh, has has resulted in 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 creating a great deal of controversy and uh, a great deal of inefficiency in the labor market. 
And until that is solved, uh, I don't think that we're going to see uh, significant changes in, in what we hear about on, on immigration. Uh, again, the, the, you know, there is a market, there is a market solution there, as 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 often as advocated at the Cato Institute, and um, but the but the U.S. government has and Congress has has not has chosen uh, not to pursue it. Now, one must think, well, if if the problem at the lower end is bad, surely surely must be uh, relatively easy to for employees to hire highly skilled people uh, because that must be the emphasis of the system. Uh, but it's really not. While it is certainly easier, and there are actually categories for people to come in and work at the, at the high skill end, uh, there's, there, the, whole, the whole system is, is plagued by, by essentially by low quotas and a lot of bureaucracies and a lot of fees. Uh, for example, in the overall green card system for employment-based immigration, the, the total is 140,000 a year. But within that total, there are what's called per country limits. And as one might guess, the distribution of highly skilled people is not equal for every single country around the world. Uh, people from India and China uh, tend to have, tend to have uh, a, a greater propensity because of their numbers, if, if for nothing else, uh, to have people who are able to work at, at, at highly skilled jobs in the United States as scientists and engineers uh, as compared to Iceland or, or some other small countries. Yet their quota is actually the same. So we did some analysis uh, late last year on what the actual wait times are potentially for people in some of the, in some of the immigration categories. And, and to do that, we had to do some estimates on what the actual backlog is. Now, for people from India, in the employment-based third preference, which is the most common preferen preference, uh, there could be as many as about 210,000 people waiting for green cards. Now, because of this per country limit, you're looking at only about 3,000 people a year can act may actually get green cards in a given year. So do the math, 210,000. Uh, 3,000 divided in, you're looking at a theoretical wait of 70 years uh, for someone who applies today. Now, no one thinks that anyone's really going to wait 70 years, uh, but you know, even and even if the estimate is off by half, you're still looking at 35 years, which is really almost an entire working adult lifetime in, in many cases. So, so clearly, uh, unless something changes there, uh, the, the, you know, this, the system just can't work. Uh, for China, it's also uh, quite long, not quite as long as for India, but you're looking at certainly more than a decade, possibly two decades in that category. In the employment-based second category, which is generally uh, masters and, and, and above, but it can also, uh, not all masters fit in there, you're looking at, for India and China, weights of often six to eight, eight years or more. For other countries, it's actually not backlogged, which is kind of an amazing feature of this per country limit. Uh, so essentially what happens is two people could be work could work at a technology company and if the person's from China, they might have to wait eight or ten years to get to get their green card. But if the person is from England or some other country, uh, they might not actually have to wait more than than the typical processing. Now, of course, it's still not that easy for, for, for some of the other countries because, in addition, you have to go through a process called labor certification, um, in which is a process that only the federal government would be able to come up with. It's a process through which, a process through which someone is already, a company already recruits, already does hiring, 
because uh, companies generally do ongoing recruitment. They hire, identify the person, the person's working for them. Then uh, to sponsor the person permanently, they have to go through uh, a labor department design process in which you show that no one, no one else in, the, in, in America uh, could have that job and at least be you know, similarly, or in some cases, minimally qualified for that job. So they make companies go through advertising and other, and other processes um, to basically try to have them disprove that the person they've hired and who they're happy with, so happy with, they're willing to spend a lot of mo time and money with to keep, uh, that they don't want, really want that person and they shouldn't have that person. Um, and for anyone who thinks it's an easy process, uh, there is a, a book that the American Immigration Lawyers Association puts out for other attorneys, and the chapter on labor certification is almost 300 pages. Okay, that's just for other attorneys to learn to learn about it. Never mind to to, to explain to everyone else. Uh, now, in addition, what ends up happening is most people end up having to get hired on temporary visas, and really the only good way to get hired ends up being an H-1B temporary visa, which. Uh, which is limited generally to 65,000 a year or an extra 20,000 if you're from a, have a master's or above from a US university. Uh, pretty much every year for the past decade, the, those numbers, the numbers have, have run out. And so employers have had to wait sometimes six months to 12 months before they could hire someone uh, again new on, 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 such, on such visas. And even for transferring in existing employees from other countries, uh, that's not easy either. The, the, the denial rates uh, have gone up dramatically, and they also have what's called request for evidence, which is a, a bureaucratic way of, of causing a delay by saying we want more paperwork, more information. And in the past year, 2011, and data that, that we obtained from the Immigration Service, almost uh, somewhere between 60 to 90% of the cases to transfer in people with specialized knowledge uh, were either denied or delayed. Uh, so you're looking at, uh, you know, that it's not an easy process. Uh, now, what about for family members? Well, that's not easy either. Uh, now, basically, for family immigration, about half, roughly half of family immigration is, is spouses uh, sponsoring uh, th their own spouses or minor children. Uh, a U.S. citizen can also sponsor a, a, an adult child uh, and, and a sibling, and as well as a parent. Um, the wait times are very long in those categories as well. For example, in the uh, until recently, uh, if someone was sponsoring a brother or sister in the Philippines, um, they had been waiting since the time when Ronald Reagan was president and the Berlin Wall was still standing. So. Uh, yeah, the wait times are somewhat less for other countries, but for Mexico, uh, you'd be looking at uh, 18 years or more for an adult child. And uh, again, these are very long wait times. Um, but you're thinking, well, there must be a way for people to get, you know, if someone has a great idea to start a company in the United States, there must be a way for like a venture capital to, venture capitalists to fund them and then they could, they could start their business. Well, no, there really isn't. Uh, there's not a way to do that. The, um, uh, I know that there was a, um, oh, I did a, a study recently on venture-funded companies and uh, how many of them had immigrant founders, and it actually was almost half of them of the companies had at least, of these top 50 venture-funded companies had at least one immigrant founder. But one of the companies I looked at, I, uh, there was these two Iranian students uh, at, at University of Maryland, and they had started a company, and uh, the, their immigration attorney told them, forget it. 
disband the company. You're not going to be able to get uh, you're not going to be able to get to stay here uh, as sponsoring yourself. Essentially, the company you being the head of the companies. So they went on um, uh, went their separate ways, and eventually they hooked up again about ten years later. And they they were fiddling around with Facebook and came up with uh, a single site that eventually became uh, Zeusk, which is a big, uh, which has about 20 million users uh, worldwide and uh, over 100 million in revenue. Uh, and but that was only after they had gotten a green card individually through other through other means, through either through employer sponsorship or other means. In fact, one of them got lucky and actually literally won the lottery, the diversity visa lottery. Uh, but we really don't want to, you know, have our our immigration system based solely on, uh, you know, someone getting lucky and, and being able to get a diversity visa. So finally, I would say that the, uh, the way to uh, improve the system going forward is actually pretty straightforward. Um, it's, for the most part, it's creating categories in the case of, uh, of lower skilled workers and being able to get hired at, uh, um, in, in the types of jobs that most illegal immigrants fill. Uh, for entrepreneurs, it's actually creating a, a visa category so people can actually uh, either be uh, through venture capital or through showing that they can create uh, three or more jobs uh, that they would be able to eventually get a green card. Um, and in the case of, uh, of the other of high-skilled high immigration, uh, for both green cards and for, uh, for something like H-1B visas, you, you basically need more numbers and, um, and a little less uh, bureaucracy as well. Thank you. Stuart, you'll be uh, wow. I don't know whether that means the process worked or didn't. <laughs> so I'm Madeline Zavodny, and many thanks to Cato for organizing this conference. Hopefully the slides will come up. There they are. Uh, so I'm going to speed through the first few because they were touched on very well uh, by Stuart Anderson just now, as well as in the excellent early panel this morning. But to think about, you know, what is a simple assessment of the current U.S. immigration system? Well, I think we can almost all agree it's broken. And it's broken in many ways and has many consequences for the U.S. economy, almost all of them adverse. Right, so I'm going to begin by talking about failures of the current system, and then at the end I'll touch a bit, just to end on a more positive note, about some of the successes, which I think we you know, are at risk of perhaps of forgetting. All right, so um, I'm an economist, and you know, when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So to me, Everything, I use supply and demand, right? Uh, so I view this as the main problem with the immigration system, as Stuart talks about, is that demand for visas is much greater than the supply of them, even with the increases in quotas that have slowly happened over time, right? And so the result of this is that there are the lengthy backlogs for most of the numerically restricted categories of green cards. So Stuart talked about the wait of up to 70 years for a skilled Indian worker to get an employment-based visa through the EB3 category, 10 to 20 years for a Chinese worker, long wait times for families uh, members as well. But another problem with this that indicates that demand is much greater than supply is the oversubscribed H-1B and H-2B visa programs. So these are the temporary worker programs, so H-1Bs up to 65,000 a year, H-2Bs up to 66,000 a year. And what we've witnessed over the past decade is that for H-1Bs, sometimes within the very first day, all of, those quote, all of those visas are gone. Right now, you know, in the aftermath of the Great Recession, in the first week, about half of them are gone. 
but the rest will quickly disappear. And then for the rest of the fiscal year, employers who want to hire someone on an H-1B visa, what are they going to have to do? They're going to have to wait or hire that worker in another country, perhaps. Similar problems with the H-2B visa program. And then other programs that don't have quotas on them, like H-2A, they're cumbersome, they're costly. Employers don't want to use them at all. Okay. So clearly, demand is greater than supply. Another failure is that there's really little role for market forces here. So the programs that do have quotas, like the EB system, the H-2A, the H-1B, the family-based categories, except for immediate relatives of US citizens, the problem with these quotas is that they're fixed. They don't vary at all over the business cycle. So in the midst of the Great Recession, what happens? We continue to give out the same number of green cards, the same number of H-1B visas, the same number of H-2B visas, H-2B visas, as we did when the economy was growing at rates of 4% a year. It just doesn't make any sense to have quotas that don't adjust in response to either supply or demand. Another problem that illustrates how there's no role for market forces is that the way the government has chosen to allocate visas is typically on either a first-come, first-served basis or on the basis of lotteries, where Stuart said, getting lucky here, right? So when do we do first-come, first-served? So this is the way we allocate the green card, that you get in line and you wait until your visa number is called. Right? And if there's relatively few people in line ahead of you, you get it sooner. If you're from a country from which lots and lots of people are in line, you're going to have to wait a very, very long time before you get served. If you're in some types of visas, though, you can get your visa through a lottery. So we allocate some simply on the basis of diversity, right? And so people who win these green cards get to come over. If you're in the oversubscribed H-1B program during one of the years of the economic boom, when there were far more applications on the first day than the number of H-1Bs available, the U.S. government you know, basically just pulled names out of a hat. They did it via computer. But nonetheless, it's simply a lottery that they're just utterly random who gets them. And so the problem to an economist is that this doesn't take into account at all either the intensity of preferences on the part of the immigrants or on the part of the sponsors. So how much does a person want to come? How much does the employer bringing over that worker want that worker? How big are the economic gains from having that immigrant, either to the immigrant's family or to the nation as a whole? Right? That none of these market forces play any role here in the immigration process. It's simply a broken system. Another problem with the current system, and this was touched on in the first panel this morning, is that there's too little emphasis on employment, that we currently have a system that massively favors family-based migration, or as Barry Chiswick provocatively said, you know, it favors nepotism. Right? It's a system based on nepotism. Right? So if we look at the allocation of green cards, how they've been handed out over the last five or so years, what we see is that 65%, so almost two-thirds of green cards, have been allocated on the basis of family relationships. This includes the unlimited number of green cards available to immediate relatives of US citizens, so spouses, minor children, and parents. And then it also includes other categories of relatives of US citizens, so brothers and sisters, adult and married children. And then for green card holders, also the ability to bring over their minor children and their spouses two-thirds of, of green cards, right, permanent residents, going to these. 
About 15% of green cards are allocated to refugees and asylees. Now, this is something you know, that's independent of economic forces and certainly should remain that way because it's a humanitarian or political uh, gesture. But nonetheless, it's a substantial share of green cards. The others is mainly that diversity lottery, where 55,000 or so green cards a year are going to people who are from underrepresented of underrepresented countries and just happen to get lucky. So only 14% of green cards in the end go to people on the basis of work. People actually sponsored by employers where the employer wants to bring them over and maybe there's some role for market forces here. But then if you look more closely at that category of the 14%, about half of those visas are going to accompanying family members. So to the spouse and to the minor children who are accompanying the worker the employer actually wants. And then when you look at who are those workers, most of them are people who are already here in the US in adjusting status. Now the fact that their employer sponsors them certainly means that they are wanted. But this is in response to market forces perhaps from many, many, many years ago when the person first entered the green card queue. It's not keeping up to date with changes in supply and demand at all. So this is a big problem with the current system. Another problem with it is that when we do admit workers, right, um, when we do admit workers, we divide it up into different, all these different very complicated categories. And luckily, the group that we end up favoring through this is that we mainly admit skilled workers. When the, we look at the family-based migration, though, many of those family members brought over, as well as the refugees and asylees and the diversity lottery visa winners, are relatively unskilled. So there are substantial economic gains that come from having the relatively skilled migrants, as was touched on some this morning, that there are big economic gains from this group. What do they include? Invention and innovation. So research by Jenny Hunt, William Kerr, and others shows that immigrants admitted on an H-1B visa or who come in on student visas, so primarily at the graduate level, are much more likely to get a patent. They're much more likely to publish an article. They're much contributing more to the economy in that way. They're inventing. They're innovating. Skilled immigrant workers are also more likely to create companies and jobs, not only than other immigrants, but perhaps also than other, than comparable natives. And so this is what research by Jenny Hunt shows, is that these workers who come in on H-1B visas or the student visas are more likely to create a company than other types of immigrants and than natives. Then my research for AEI and the Partnership for a New American Economy shows that these benefits from highly skilled immigrants, those who have a college degree or more, are substantial, that they're creating jobs not only for themselves, but also for natives on balance, that for each additional skilled immigrant, you're getting perhaps five more jobs being created for natives. So that's a substantial economic gain. And as was discussed this morning, there's also a positive fiscal impact. Now, of course, this is true of skilled natives, as well as true of skilled immigrants. But it's a reason why we want a system that favors skilled immigrants if we're thinking about the economic implications of it, and why we wouldn't want a system that favors family-based migration <laughs> instead of employment-based migration. Another problem with the system is that there's no way for many potential immigrants to enter. So Stuart touched some on this, that the fact that we re 
restrict green cards to these close family members, to refugees, and almost exclusively when we do give them on the basis of employment to skilled workers, means that it's very, very difficult for a low-skilled worker to enter the U.S. legally, particularly to stay. There is the H-2A and the H-2B temporary visa programs. But those, again, they're costly, they're cumbersome, and the HTVs are numerically limited. So employers don't like to use the system, and there's, that's not an easy way for a low-skilled potential migrant to enter at all. Right? These temporary visa programs, they're cumbersome, they're restrictive. So what happens if you're a low-skilled worker and you want to enter the US? You enter illegally. Right? And so as a result, we've ended up with some 11 million plus unauthorized immigrants here. So this figure shows you from 1980 through 2010 estimates of how big this population is. You can see the pretty steady growth and then the plateauing and perhaps a little dip during the depths of the Great Recession. Right? So what happened during the Great Recession? A few fewer of them came, perhaps more of them went home, right? but nonetheless, most stayed, right? 11 plus million unauthorized immigrants here. That plateauing in recent years suggests why do unauthorized immigrants come? Well, it's mainly to work. And so this figure, which is from Pia's in my article in the Cato Journal, shows apprehensions as the black line and then weighted construction employment growth in the red line. And what you see is that the two series are moving very closely together. The stronger construction employment growth is, the higher apprehensions at the US-Mexico border are. People are entering primarily to work not because they want to enter illegally, but because there isn't a legal channel for them to enter, either temporarily or permanently. Another thing that we discuss in the article that we view as a failure of the current system is the failure to enact a legalization program. I think we would almost all agree that there needs to be a credible plan to minimize future illegal inflows in order for this to happen. Now, as Tamar Jacoby said this morning, comprehensive immigration reform may be unlikely. But nonetheless, there are lots of fixes that could happen. But these fixes with regard to the unauthorized are going to take a plan that probably requires greater border enforcement, greater interior enforcement, but most importantly, a channel for people who want to work in the US and can't enter under current channels to enter. We need to create a way for low-skilled workers to enter, at least temporarily. When you think about what would happen if we enacted a legalization plan, there would be some benefits. These benefits would accrue primarily to the legalizers. We heard from the first, first panel this morning, who benefits mainly from immigration is the immigrants. Who benefits mainly from legalization? The legalizers, of course, right? The wage gains aren't really that big, though. Six to 13% were the estimates of the impact of IRCA on legalizers' wages. Uh, legalizers do tend to move into better occupations. They tend to be more eligible for, they then become eligible for more transfer programs. And so what happens then uh, is that they're more costly. Another thing that happens, though, is that they become eligible to sponsor their family members to immigrate. And so in our article, we show this picture, which is the aftermath of IRCA, looking at legal inflows from Mexico of immediate relatives and then other family-sponsored immigrants. And so what you see in post-IRCA and then 245I, which was another sort of amnesty-type program, big legal inflows as a result. So one lesson, if we do another legalization program, is that clearly we need to think carefully about what is going to be the impact on future legal inflows that legalizers will presumably sponsor people to come. If they can't sponsor people to come, 
what would happen? They would probably come illegally because family reunification is so very important. Okay? So the primary benefits are legalizers. When you think about other impacts, some people benefit, some people are harmed, much as is the case with any type of immigration program. One thing we learned in the post-IRCA era is that if you design a legalization program with greater enforcement, legal, often US native-born Hispanics, are harmed because there tends to be an increase in discrimination when you get more interior enforcement. So that's something to think carefully about. And of course, we need to think carefully about the fiscal impact, which would likely be negative. Finally, in the remaining one minute, a little bit about the successes to end on a positive note. We have an inclusive and incredibly generous system. The Pew Hispanic Center report that came out this week pointed out the very interesting fact that there are more Mexican immigrants living in the United States than in any other country in the world, all of its immigrants combined. Right? We have a system that has really been quite welcoming overall. We have increased our emphasis on skilled immigration through the 1990 Immigration Act and then through the American Competitiveness in the 21st Century Act. But instead of piecemeal fixes, we really need a new system. We may not get comprehensive immigration reform, as Tamar told us, but we need it. We need a system that prioritizes employment and that gives a much greater role to market forces. So hopefully this afternoon's panel will discuss how we can go about getting a system like that. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. <clears throat> Welcome to the uh, newly renovated F.A. Hayek Auditorium. It's my first time speaking in the newly renovated F.A. Hayek Auditorium. I'm a little bit worried that the lighting is so good um, on my forehead. <coughs> I appreciated uh, Ilya's introduction uh, because it really has been my professional ace in the hole here at uh, Cato that nobody actually understands what I do. Um, <laughs> when, when they ask me, I just mutter about protocols and computers and SCADA systems and things like that, and they tend to go away. Um, my my uh, error might be bragging about that at public fora that are being taped. Um, uh, thank, uh, thank you for the introduction, Ilya. Congratulations and thanks to Dan Eikenson for putting this together, which I know has been a lot of work, and also Dan Griswold, who preceded him in the organization of this uh, uh, important conference. Uh, let me reveal a bias and, and, and tell you how I came to this issue in the first place. Um, I actually was uh, taught prejudice in my home as a young, as a young man. Uh, my father grew up in Douglas, Arizona, uh, Bakersfield, California, and he, he taught his son something that sticks with me to this day, and that is that Mexicans are nicer than most people. That's the prejudice I come to the issue with. And, and so... Nicer than Canadians? Way nicer than Canadians, especially the Russian Canadians. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, I, I, I make that joke and sometimes worry about scaring people a little bit too much by talking about prejudice, but that is my, my prejudgment of things, and experience has borne it out. Uh, not that I've done the, the statistical work to verify that Mexicans are nicer than most people, but, but I believe it to be the case. Uh, more recently, though, I come to the issue, uh, having been asked to testify uh, in April 2007 before the House Judiciary's Immigration Subcommittee, which was chaired by Zoe Lofgren, who will be our, uh, our uh, luncheon speaker today, um, a, a derisive thank you to Zoe Lofgren for that opportunity um, because the issue is still with us, obviously, of E-Verify and, and how the system works and how it, uh, the, the direction of the system. Uh, that testimony uh, 
caused me to, to continue my research and write a policy analysis in 2008 called Franz Kafka's Solution to Illegal Immigration. Uh, it's not well known, but it is a 10-year reprise of a policy analysis that my colleague Stephen Moore wrote, uh, which was called Big Brother's Solution to Illegal Immigration. So for a lot of years now, actually, uh, the, the liberty consequences of immigration enforcement have been significant and growing. I, uh, I recall fondly, though, during my, during my testimony before the, the committee, the subcommittee, um, Chairman Conyers was there. This was during a period of Democratic control in the House. Chairman Conyers was there, and he said, this is going to be a terrible imitation, but he said, Harper, Cato Institute, this is the first time I've heard Cato making any sense. <laughs> and I, I just encouraged the, the then chairman to listen a little more often. But, uh, but uh, obviously, since then, the issue remains of E-Verify and its consequences, and so an updated and improved article about E-Verify is, is here in the Cato Journal, which I think is such a valuable resource on this issue, uh, which the country must address, address and, and this will be an important contribution. So let me go into E-Verify. I'll have to skip over the top of a lot of it, obviously. Um, some of its history and some of its function and its likely consequence if it becomes the national required program that advocates uh, want it to be. Um, my focus, different from others, obviously, in the immigration issue, is really actually not on the economics, not on the immigrant necessarily, but on the liberty of the American citizen and resident. That's a niche that, that uh, others aren't really talking about in the immigration debate, but I think it's worth talking about. And so, so if I add something to the debate that way, I'm happy to do it. Uh, th this idea of internal enforcement uh, really got its start only in 1986. I think a lot of people sort of accept the I-9 uh, form as just a given for employment. But it's only 26 years old. Nowadays, that's not very long for me. It used to be like, seemed like 26 years was a long time. But, uh, but let's keep in mind, uh, immigration restrictionists, this is business regulation. This is paperwork. And it's only been around for 26 years. Golly, we could make it go away again. But this is sort of contrary to what most people in the restrictionist area are, are about, which is letting business do their thing, enjoying free markets generally. Um, so, we, so we installed this regulation 26 years ago that employers have to sort of, as deputies of the federal government, have to look into to people's background. Obviously very cursory. Uh, use of, of driver's licenses and social security cards and so on and so forth. The, the form goes in a drawer and nothing happens. Well, nothing really did happen in the ensuing 10 years. And so, it, so from 1986, when, when the I-9 was created in the Immigration Reform and Control Act, uh, up to 1996, that policy didn't really do much of anything. But in 1996, the Illegal Immigration Reform and Immigrant Responsibility Act brought us a program called Basic Pilot. Obviously, many of you are familiar, familiar with Basic Pilot, but for those, those that aren't, uh, Basic Pilot was one of three programs that were designed to sort of improve on the, the I-9 program. Only just recently uh, it was changed, uh, its name was changed to Employment Eligibility Verification. And then I guess somebody did some focus groups uh, at, the, at the Department of Homeland Security and realized nobody understood what that was. And so they called it, they changed the name again to E-Verify, uh, hoping to make it uh, palatable. In, in essence, and, and very briefly it works, by, by requiring employers, the employers that are required to use it currently uh, will submit the I-9 information online uh, to the government and that data will be run past government databases. Most often Social Security Administration databases uh, and sometimes for legal immigrants uh, past uh, Department of Homeland Security databases. Simply put, 
it does a check between the name and the social security number to see if they match. That is some evidence that the person is entitled to work because the name and the social security number, you've got to do a little bit of work uh, to make sure those things match up if you're, if you're not a legal immigrant entitled to, uh, to work. Should the number not match, the name, what, a tentative non-confirmation is issued. It's issued to the employer, and the employer is supposed to pass this along to the potential employee uh, with instructions about how to get things resolved. And the, the potential employee does have to get things resolved within, I think, eight days. Uh, if they do not, uh, a final non-confirmation is issued. That's bureaucraties for you're fired. Now, does that system work? Does even that system work? Well, a lot of employers will use it for pre-screening. That's contrary to the rules, but guess what? Somebody, sometimes people break rules. Am I going to have any hassles with empl this employee? I'm going to pre-screen them through E-Verify. Uh, when a tentative non-confirmation is issued, does the employer pass along the information that allows the employee to go clear that up? That's not going to happen every time. And, and very interesting, I think, and importantly, um, screening workers screens out workers. So even legal workers in the United States um, will, will a, a certain percentage of them, um, will be screened out by E-Verify. Uh, not informed why they didn't get a job, not informed that they have to go clear this up. Obviously, there's plenty of anecdote. The statistics are always in debate. But just think about the fact that a person's right to earn a living is compromised by E-Verify, and that's important to, to be concerned about. It also, I think importantly, knocks rungs off the ladder. Now, I have no idea of the veracity of the story but I was met by a man, it's now three, probably four years ago, uh, just, just out on the street here recently. Sorry, three years ago. It was recent when I started telling the story. And he said, hey, can you help me out? Uh, I've got a job lined up at the convention center, but I don't have an ID and I need $30 to go down to the DMV and pay for the ID that I'm required to get to get this job. Again, it's as likely to just be a story as not. But how many times does it actually happen? that somebody who has suffered drug addiction or alcohol addiction, uh, somebody who's lost all of their documentation in a fire, who's really down on their luck at the bottom end of the, of the economic ladder, can't get a legitimate job because they have to go through the process of getting an ID, proving who they are to a Department of Motor Vehicles before they get that work. That's a concern. We're supposed to be about getting people to work. But the E-Verify policy, this, the I-9 policy, the E-Verify policy and, and essentially internal enforcement are knocking rungs off the lower end of the economic ladder. I do technology systems, and so uh, my analysis of E-Verify largely goes to, to how it works and how it breaks as, as a technology system. I wrote a book in 2006 called Identity Crisis, How Identification is Overused and Misunderstood, and that went into identification policy. First, what identification is and how it works, and then identification policy, essentially opposing a national ID and, and illustrating reasons why we don't want to have a national ID in the country. But it's made me somewhat knowledgeable about how identity systems work. And if you want to administer a national program for verifying that people are in the country legally or were born in the country, entitled to work under the immigration laws, you have to figure out on a national basis how to identify people and then how to look them up in your records. Well, there are many, as I go, as I go into in, in uh, the Cato Journal article and others, there are many counterattacks and complications. Obviously, E-Verify as it stands now is easily beatable. Get a name and a social security number that match. Use a male name if you're a man. Use a female name if you're a woman. Done. 
You've gotten through the system. Well, um, the next iteration of E-Verify, and it's already underway, is to add a biometric. Now, let's, let's not get spooked by that. Right now, we're talking about a picture. A picture is a biometric. It's an analog, uh, easy biometric. But the photo screening tool is already adding that biometric uh, from State Department and DHS databases to the E-Verify program. It comes up on the screen with a picture of the person, the picture that they presented for their green card or what other document. The RIDE program, called Records and Information from Departments of Motor Vehicles for E-Verify, is linking up E-Verify to state DMVs. It's not yet collecting biometrics, but it's getting document numbers and things like that. It's a conduit through which your driver license information will be shuffled over to the federal government for its use. The response, of course, will be just deeper identity frauds. Basically, economics predicts it because it's very, very valuable to have an ID in the country. And the more valuable it is, the more investment will go into producing IDs, whether through fraud or through forgery. The ideal fix for all these problems, which I haven't, haven't detailed to you very well here today, the ideal fix is cradle-to-grave biometric tracking. I'm fond of saying that paranoia in the tech sphere, it's just having a long enough time horizon. So bear with me. But that's the, that's the direction, the, t the tangent that these policies are on. Uh, perhaps my, my paper was an educational brief because H.R. 2885, the Legal Work Workforce Act, uh, Lamar Smith's bill, has a biometric employment eligibility verification pilot program in it. I don't want to be here in 26 years saying, this pilot program, now that it's become real, we all have fingerprints and thumbprints in, in federal databases. But these things take a long time to work themselves out, to be produced by the federal government, and they continue to work on these things. Lots of different tangents coming together to produce the national ID that we all oppose. And I was very gr glad to hear on the first panel people mentioning this fact, because I don't think people realized in the early going that E-Verify and a national ID are, are siblings. So what if we had this successful E-Verify system? Well, yes, we'd use it to control access to working so that perhaps the economic magnet of coming to the United States would, would be reduced. But if it didn't work all that well, maybe we'd use it for controlling access to financial services before you go to the bank, before you get that credit card, uh, to housing, to health care, controlling access to prescriptions, gun ownership. The list goes on and on and on. The program could metastasize in other dimensions as well. Perhaps you wouldn't be identified in the E-Verify system if you got crossways with the government somehow or another. Say you were late or behind on your child support payments. Uh, what if you hadn't paid up all your parking tickets? Let's say you're behind on your taxes. You haven't filed your 1040 yet. Who, who, anybody? What about security issues? Perhaps you're a potential threat to the government. Maybe you're on that watch list that, that has you pulled out of line at TSA. A system like this, used widely, would be a wonderful surveillance system, providing information to the government and perhaps to private parties as well about your comings and goings. You'd have that national ID, a system that's national. It identifies. The social security number is not an identification system. It's an identifier, showing that the name and the number match. But it's not an identification system. We aren't all the way there yet. And it would be legally required or practically required if you wanted to work in the United States to have E-Verify. So I've called E-Verify worse than real ID, the national ID law. E-Verify would be cardless. You wouldn't be able to hold up a card and say, this is me, this is my ID. You have to, you have to accept this or you're talking crazy because somebody at a computer screen you couldn't see would say, no, no, you're not in the system. 
So that's just one dimension of internal enforcement. But my study of E-Verify and its consequences down the road for liberty uh, really caused me uh, to doubt and second guess the concept of internal enforcement. And it does have, it starts to, when you think about it, this idea of internal enforcement has a sort of Soviet sound to it. What does that mean? Checkpoints. We have them already, internal checkpoints, uh, looking, for, looking for people who've uh, crossed the border illegally. Raids. Some administrations focus on workers. Some administrations focus on employers. But the federal government is raiding businesses. That's something you should just stand up. Wait a minute. What is the federal government doing raiding businesses in the United States? Now, I said that John Conyers seems to have thought that Cato was making some sense. Obviously, I need to appeal to conservatives, because there are many conservatives who are anti-national ID, but they're also pro-E-Verify. And you can't be anti-national ID and pro-E-Verify at the same time. So that's a message that I've tried to carry out to those communities, obviously. The, the overall topic of our conference, is immigration good for America? I think so, based on prejudice. I'll admit, I do know that immigration enforcement is bad for America in terms of liberty. And so that's the point I emphasize to you. When we turn it over, obviously Ilya runs the show here, but I'll suggest that you shouldn't have to identify yourself during Q&A. <laughs> Thank you very much.